Some of you may remember that a few weeks before Christmas, my bride Julie came out here on stage in a baby carrier with a small puppy, introducing the church family to our new dog, Gus. Gus, I'm just telling you right now, I'm sure you love your dog and they're fine, but everybody else is playing for second place at this point. Let me show you a little picture of Gus just to remind you and refresh your memory. I swore I wouldn't do this. Is he awesome? He is unbelievable. Sweet. He is so sweet. They say that they take on the personality of their owners. I don't know about that. But anyway, that was a joke. But this is Gus. We got him uh, about a week and a half before Thanksgiving. And then a week or so after we got Gus, our daughter Emily, who lives in an apartment here in town, she got a little puppy, and I'd like to introduce you to Walter. Here's Walter. <laughs> Walter is a boxer, and he is a dude. I mean, and let me tell you what, this is the greatest thing. This is like the closest we have to grandkids at this point in our lives. Walter is, he's a great dog, but he is a holy terror. <laughs> and so I just had some fun with Emily the other day and said, Emily, we, he, we spend a lot of time around Walter because what will happen is, Walter and Gus will have play dates. When Emily comes to work at the church from her apartment, a lot of times she'll drop Walter off at our house, and then she, he and Gus play together all day, and they get along great. They're like little brothers or whatever. But like I said, Walter kind of has, has a mind of his own, and, and Emily would agree with this. He, he's not quite as sweet as Gus. And so the other day I told Emily, I said, Emily, I think Walter is awesome. I love him. He's my first grandchild. He's phenomenal. And I think he's ready for some discipline now. <laughs> Emily did not laugh at that. She did not think that was funny. But he is a great dog. And, and as a matter of fact, like I said, he and Walter play together a lot. But they have also together taken on the maintenance of our backyard together. Here's a shot of uh, Walter and Gus working together in the backyard, irrigating our backyard. So we have Walter and Gus, and then we also had Annie and Cooper before we got Walter and Gus. We, in the last few months, we're getting, I think we're beginning to see the light at the end of the house training tunnel. We have cleaned up a river of dog stuff and picked up mountains of dog number two in the last couple months. But here's what I'm convinced of. I believe that our backyard this spring is going to be the greenest in the entire neighborhood because of all of the dogs that we have fertilizing our backyard. We have devoted ourselves, right before Christmas, we actually aerated our backyard. If you've ever done that, you know where they, they bring in, the, you bring in this machine and it picks up little plugs of dirt out of the lawn, out of the sod, so that enough light and enough rain and enough you know, nutrients gets into the grass. So between the aerating and the fertilization of the backyard. We, we've got a lot invested in the soil of our backyard. And that's what I want to talk to you today about. Not about the fertilization, but about the cultivation of the soil of our soul. Last week, we started this series, Reap Year, where we decided together kind of that, that we were going to work at making 2020 a year of intentionality a year of deliberately choosing to 
sow, to, to plant into our lives and into what God has for us so that at the end of 2020, we might be able to reap, to, to harvest all of the good things, all of the God things that he has in store for us personally and collectively. And this series, this year is really based upon the fact that we are always, every single one of us, whether we're aware of it or not, we are always sowing and reaping. We are always planting and harvesting. But before you can ever get into the the planting and the harvesting, you have to, first of all, take care of the soil that you're planting in. And the soil that we're all planting in is the soil of our souls. The, the, the fact is that, that God has created every single one of us. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell him, that means you. He has created every one of us on purpose, with a purpose. And, and so, if you can, think about this. I know that the word soul can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but, but what it basically means is, is this is the essence of who you are. That, that's your, your soul. That, that's what God imparted to you. That's what makes you, you. Your, your soul is what gives you your, your you-ness, if you will. And, and so how we cultivate the soil of our soul is absolutely mission critical to what we sow and what we reap, what we plant and what we harvest. And it's this idea that is actually at the heart and soul of the Christian message, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 16. If you're maybe new to the faith or you've never been to church or haven't been to church in a long time, this is a, a really a great place to begin because it's a kind of a reminder. This is this is what we're talking about. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. Look at what he said in Matthew 16, verse 24 and following. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You have to take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Now, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? You and I both know that it is entirely possible in this life that we live to neglect our soul, to, to not care for it, to not till the soil of our soul. It's also possible to starve our soul. There, there's, a, there's a great term that's, that's very, very popular right now, and it's popular because I looked it up on Google. How many of you are familiar with the term self-care? You know the term self-care? If you look up self-care on Google, there are more than 2.8 billion results that show up under self-care. Care. We are obsessed with self-care, whether we're aware of it or not. We, we all are thinking about it. But I, I think a better way of looking at that, instead of putting ourselves at the center of the universe, is to think about soul care. What, what are the things that we can do that contribute to the health and welfare of our soul? When Jesus talks about 
nothing being more valuable than your soul. He, he's echoing the wisdom of the Old Testament. Look in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Guard your heart, your soul, above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart. Take care of your soul. Till and cultivate the soil of your soul because that determines everything else in life. Everything that you do, everything that I do flows out of our soul. And a lot of times we, we like to think that our souls are in their essence really good. We, we think, I, I'm, a, I'm a good person. Let me just ask you to put that thought on hold for just a second. How many of you are parents in the room? Can I see a show of hands of moms and dads? Okay, moms and dads, you, you, you have seen this. You may not remember your infancy and toddlerhood, but you certainly have seen it in the lives of your own little gifts and, and bundles of joy. When a child is born, we all come into this world. You do, I do, all God's children come into this world convinced that we are the center of the universe. We, we are born the king and queen of a kingdom called me. Because when we're first born, everybody responds to everything we want. Wah, feed it. Wah, clean it. Wah, put it to bed. Wah, give it what it wants. Figure it out. Stop the noise. And so for the first few months, weeks and months of our lives, we, we kind of like, okay, I understand how this works. And it doesn't take babies long to figure out. I can make everybody in this house jump. All I got to do is wah, and they come running. And it's fine when they're infants. That, that's the way it ought to be to some degree. But at a certain point, it's incumbent upon parents to, to help to disavow our children of this notion that we are the center of the universe. How many of you have been parents of a three-year-old? Can I see a show of hands? Everybody with your hand up in the air right now, whether you know it or not, you believe in the depravity of man. You believe in the fact that we are born. Nobody has to take a class to be selfish and, and by the way, I don't know who ever came up with the term terrible twos. Terrible two, that person had never met a three-year-old. If you have a two-year-old at home right now, I'm just here to tell you that this is the easiest it's going to get. <laughs> three. Three years old is when they come out of their bedroom with a metaphorical crown on their heads, determined to assert their sovereignty. If you've ever had a three-year-old go, no, mommy. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> no, daddy. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Five minutes ago, you were so sweet. But see, they're, they're learning how to be sovereign of the kingdom called me. And it's obviously a parent's job to teach them that they're not the center of the universe. Some parents do well, some do not. Sometimes people grow up and become adults. 
and they still think they're the center of the universe. But it is incumbent upon every one of us to recognize that this is the original state of our soul. This is, this is, the, this is what we come from the factory with. It's there in your life. It's there in my life. And Jesus uses the phrase here that, that there is a kingdom that is ushered in in him. He, he calls it over and over again in his teaching, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is communicating is the fact that the Christian life is first and foremost a revolution. It is a complete coup d'etat where the kingdom of me is replaced by the kingdom of thee. It is where Jesus takes the throne, apologies to Carrie Underwood, where Jesus takes the throne or the wheel of our lives and becomes the center of our universe. And it's, it's in that transformation, it's in that revolution that we begin to experience what Jesus referred to as the life that is overflowing and abundant, the life that is truly life. And he, he told us this over and over again. He used a lot of different metaphors, a lot of different pictures. He spoke in, in parables using earthly language to communicate heavenly, eternal truths. And in Matthew chapter 13, it is one of these parables that he told, and he actually uses the symbolism of Soil. Look in Matthew chapter 13. This is what the Bible says. In verse 3 and following, it says, He told many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. He said, Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds, and as he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. And Jesus is going to continue this metaphor, this parable in the verses that follow. But one of the great things about Matthew 13 and this parable that he told is he went to the trouble to actually explain it word for word to his followers. We don't have to, sometimes he would tell a parable and he would just say, if you can figure it out, good luck. If you can't, sorry. But in this case, he actually explains what every part of the story means. Look at what it says. It says that he went out and he scattered these seeds across the field. The seed that Jesus is talking about here is the, the gospel, the gospel message. Some, some translations of the Bible in verse 19 say that the, the gospel message is the word of the kingdom, the, the, the announcement that the kingdom has now come in the form of Jesus Christ. And so the seed is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. That's what the word gospel means. And so the, the seed comes out. It, it is being broadcast. It's being, it's being scattered. And just so that we all make sure we're on the same page, what's the gospel? What, what does that actually mean? What is the essence of this new kingdom, of this message that Jesus proclaimed? Well, it's very simple. The gospel, the message is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him 
would never die but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would never die. So there's a lot packed into that John chapter 3 verse 16 that is one of the most well-known in the entire Bible. But it's imperative that you understand what that means. That when the Bible says God so loved the world, you understand that love originates in God. And God loves, yes, yes, the world and creation, but the world here means God loves you. God loves me by name as is. Even though we all have this predisposition to the kingdom of me, he still loves us, period, hard stop. And, and he knows and reveals to us that we need forgiveness of our sins. We need restoration into the right relationship that we were created for, we were designed for. And so he gave his son Jesus to accomplish just that. So that in Jesus, he would live a perfect, sinless life, never compromised morally or spiritually. But then he would go to the cross in your place and in my place, and there take on. The Bible says he became our sin, my sin, your sin, all of it. And he took that on himself and he paid the penalty of sin, which is always death. It is separation and alienation from God. But then he did what we couldn't have done for ourselves because in his power and in his authority, he rose from the dead. He got up out of the ground and the grave is empty. And when he did, he got up. He got up with the promise of new life for anyone who would follow him. With, with the offer, if you would just accept what he did for you on the cross and in the resurrection, he would offer you a new life. That is this gospel, this good news message, the seed that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 13. But look at what he says here. He says, first of all, there was some seed that fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Later on, he explains that the footpath represents disbelief. The footpath is just disbelief because it's, it's kind of hard and beaten down. And so that seed doesn't take root. It doesn't go into the soil. And so the birds see the seed, and they come down and eat that and scatter it away. That disbelief is the choice that every single one of us has. Once you have received that seed, once you have heard the good news and the gospel, you have the option to believe it. You have the choice. God has given you the opportunity to choose to own that, to appropriate it, to incorporate it into your daily life, to make it a part of who you are, or not. You, you can absolutely choose to walk away from that. And that seed, that seed gets scattered. Some seed gets scattered. Jesus goes on in verse 5 and he says, Now other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun. And since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Now, Jesus is, is very, very clear here that the rocky soil in verses 5 and 6, that's not the disbelief of the footpath, but rocky soil is difficulties. 
Rocky soil is the difficulties that we all face. And if our faith isn't deep enough, if it's not anchored in roots that have anchored deep into some deeper soil, man, when the winds blow, when the sun kind of beats down and you, you find yourself in the desert, you find yourself in a wilderness time, man, the, the faith will wither. The faith will, will, will shrivel up. And Jesus said, you, you, you've got to go a little bit deeper. You, you can't just kind of dip your toe in this spiritual thing. You can't just play at church. You, you, need to, you need to put down roots. You need to choose to own what the Bible says, to make it a part of your life. The book of Psalms says over and over again, the longest chapter in the entire Bible is Psalm chapter 119. Psalm chapter 119, the entire thing is about the Word of God. It's about incorporating it. It's about ingesting it. It's about making it a part of who you are, the Word of God. And, and that's, that's putting down those roots. Elsewhere, the Bible says that someone who is planted in the house of God will flourish in old age. If you're planted in the house of God, you will flourish in old age. How many of you are under the age of 40? Can I just see a show of hands if you're under 40? A bunch of pups. That's great. That's awesome. Listen, if you're under 40, you are young. You are young. If you're 53, you are so young. No, if you're 40 or younger, you're young. But putting down your roots, God promises to cause you to flourish even in your old age. When you get to 53, you can still flourish. You can still thrive if you're planted in the house of God, if your roots are anchored in the word of God. You make that a priority. And you, you take on responsibility for your own spiritual maturity, your own spiritual growth and development, and you actually cultivate the soil of your soul. You, you make that a priority and you're not, just, you're not just playing at it. You're not just kind of taking a check swing. You're actually all in. You are, you are flat out. You are flat out sowing. You, you are planting. You are cultivating. Jesus says without that, man, if your faith is shallow, if you have a shallow faith, it's just, it's just kind of hydroplaning superficiality. Jesus said be careful because, man, the winds will blow. The heat will come, I promise you. He said, and that's when you need roots. You, you need a deeper soil. It's so important. He goes on in verse 7, and he says, Other seeds, other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and, and choked out the tender plants. And Jesus explains that the, the thorns are the distractions of this world. It's amazing how, how Jesus knew 2,000 years ago exactly where we would be. He, he knew that the human condition is prone to distractions. And some of the distractions Jesus said are fine by themselves, in and of themselves. They're not necessarily bad, but Jesus said it, it's the concerns of this world. It's the desire for money, Jesus said, that can become a distraction. It, it, can, it, it can challenge the sovereignty of God and the kingdom of God in our lives for first place. I've never met anybody. I've, I've never had a conversation with anybody 
who has once and for all settled the issue of priorities. I've never met that person. It is a constant tension that we have to learn to live with and we have to learn to manage in our lives. It's about the priorities. It's about setting those priorities and guarding those priorities. That's what guarding your heart really means. You're guarding the priorities of your life. You're not allowing other things to take the place of God. I think a lot of the things that become distractions for us are in and of themselves good. They're, they're, they're fine. But it's when they become too important, when they become more important, that the kingdom of God starts to take a back seat to the kingdom of me. And Jesus is saying that these things become thorns. They, they choke these things out, these distractions. But verse 8, verse 8 is where Jesus brings it home. And th this is where it gets good. This is where it gets fun. Look at what he says. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. The fertile soil, the fertile soil is, is it's being, it's, it's, it's reception and responsiveness. It's receiving the word of God. It's, it's knowing what the word says. It's, it's growing spiritually. It's tilling the soil of our souls, but it's also responding to it. It's actually putting it into practice. When you think about thorns, think about idols. The very first commandment that God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 20 that will have no other gods before me. He is God and nothing and no one else. I think one of the biggest challenges to the sovereignty of God, to, to the priority of God, can come in our relationships. A lot of times we put our, our human relationships ahead of our relationship with God, especially when we think about our kids. When, when we think about our kids' success and our kids' happiness. So many times we say, we, we want to raise happy kids. No, you don't. You want to raise happy adults who move out, <laughs> who, who, who become functioning, self-sustaining, replicating. They, they, they can actually exist on their own without mommy and daddy. It's an amazing thing, but I think it comes from a good place, and I understand it. It's just misplaced because the reality is we are called as parents to work ourselves out of a job. Our job is to work ourselves out of a job. Our children, our children are not our children. They are the Lord's. God has just entrusted them to us for 18, maybe 22 years. But at that point, bye-bye. We, we've got such a small window to help set them up for a win. And then into the world, into the world, into the world, out of the nest. It's just, they got to go. They got to go. And so it's this slow methodical, prayer-filled transfer of power 
When we bring them home, they have no power whatsoever other than emotional and vocal. But over time, we, we train them, we equip them, train up a child in the way he should go, in the way she should go. It's not about my dreams for Emily and Joe. It's about what God's created them for, what he's called them to. And it's about helping them get to a place where they can figure that out. Because ultimately, it's between them and God. So if I make my kids' success the center of my universe, they're not built for that. They're not built to carry that much weight. I was working out recently, and a guy who was there with me working out, he goes, hey, Mac, I think you can do more. I want you to, I want you to, I want you to, you know, put on there another 25 pounds. How many of you know that the male ego can be a different, a difficult thing? <laughs> so, all right. Threw on some more weight. Got up underneath it. Have you ever noticed too, like, when you when you're about to try something that you don't feel like you can do? Like, you need more setup time. For the record, I did not clear the weight. I was only squatting about 475 that day. And again, your laughter hurts. I don't know why. At 53 years old, I, I was not built for that load. Our kids, God's kids, are not built for the load to exist as the center of our universe. It's too much pressure. It's too much weight on them. We love them. Mine are, my, our, Julie's and my kids, they're out of the house. They graduated college. They're out. It's awesome. I'd still die on a hill for them. But now it's their deal. It's their deal. And as much as I love them, and as much as I would do for them, they can't be the center of my universe. And so Jesus says that the soil that is fertile, it receives the word, it hears it, and then it responds to the word. It actually produces actual fruit. Actual produce comes from this seed in fertile soil. How many of y'all are trying, like it's January right now as we're doing this. How many of you right now are trying to eat better than you did in December? Let me just see a show of hands. The bar is on the floor. If you're trying to, keep your hands up for just a second, okay? I'm right there with you. Julie and I are on this crazy eating plan right now. I'm a little hangry as we speak. But, <laughs> try not to preach hangry. But, <clears throat> I'm, I'm eating more veg. I'm not a vegetable guy as a general rule. Like, I love, I like, I love red meat. I like potatoes. Like, if, if the stuff on my plate is like pink and beige, I'm happy. That, that's, that's the bomb to me. I've eaten more vegetables in the last three weeks than I did the last six months of 2019. But I've also learned this about vegetables. Amen. The longer you cook them, the longer you cook vegetables, the better they taste. Like, you know, if you, if you just kind of like flash 
steam broccoli or whatever. Ooh, it, I mean, it's fine. You put enough salt on it, you can get it down. But like, if you if you put broccoli in the oven and you char, and like char it a little bit, it kind of starts to taste a little like meat. You put enough char on something, it's really good. You know what? That's the laugh of recognition. Every one of you knows what I'm talking about. But, but here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. If you char the veggies, you, you cook all the nutrients out of them. They've got the most nutrition when they come out of the soil. That, that's when they come out of the soil and they go to our grocery store, where, where is it? That's in the what? That's the produce section. Because that soil has produced produce. The seeds went in the ground. The ground was cultivated. It was cared for. It was tended. And then, and then that produce, that fruit was harvested. That's exactly what Jesus is describing here. Galatians chapter 5. The Bible says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. If you, if you wonder how the soil of your soul is doing, here's our report card. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. That's, that's fruit coming out of healthy soil. Patience. That may hit a little too close to home sometimes. Joy, peace, love. Self-control, self-control to eat more vegetables. But there's a connection here between the fruit and the produce of healthy soil and, and what Jesus said at the very beginning. Remember when Jesus, with the very first thing that we said, when Jesus said, what's more valuable than your soul? He said, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. You have to take up your cross every day and follow him. Trust him more than you trust yourself. Look at, look at how the Bible follows up this list, this fruit of the Spirit. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. You see, in order for this fruit to live, my sinful nature has to die. In order for the fruit, in, in order to produce healthy produce and fruit, the sin, the mess, the shame has to die. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what we can't do for ourselves. Now, I don't know where you are today, but I do know this. Every one of us, every one of us has part of that innate human nature, that sin nature that we're born with that has yet to die that has yet to be crucified. And, and so the good news of Jesus is that it, it absolutely can be because his death on the cross, 
is sufficient. It is sufficient. Whatever it is in your life, whatever it is in my life, it is sufficient. His death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient. It's enough. It's enough to crucify the old and raise up the new. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. Just for a moment. I'm going to ask nobody to move around or try to get out the door. Just for a second, because this is sacred ground that we're on. If you're here today and you've never taken that on, you've never owned that personally, we invite you to do it right now. We want to give you the opportunity to step into a relationship with Christ. Just by praying right where you're sitting, a prayer of beginning, a prayer of commitment, just from your heart to God, silently say something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I know that I need your forgiveness, your grace. And so I confess my sin to you in order to receive your forgiveness. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and that you rose again. And so in this moment, I receive your grace and your forgiveness. I receive your authority in my life, and I will follow you. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. you would just remain with your heads bowed for another moment. Because if you just prayed that prayer, this is the greatest moment of your life, the the biggest, the most significant moment of your life. And as a church, as a family of faith, we want to help with what's next. And so I want to ask you to do just a couple of things. Right where you're sitting, if you would open up the program just right now that you got when you came in. You'll notice inside is a connect card. If you just fill that card out for us, about a third of the way down, you'll see there's a place to indicate I committed my life to Christ this week, kind of in the left-hand margin. And what that card does is it just initiates a conversation that proceeds at whatever pace works for you like I said, so that we can help with what's next. Because this is a beginning, the biggest beginning of your life. Once you've completed that card, you can tear it off. You can just kind of there along the fold. You can tear it off. It's perforated. And I want to ask you, if you would, when we dismiss in just a moment, if you would make sure that you hand that card to one of our ushers or or maybe to somebody at the hub underneath the big front porch out here to your right so that we can help. Also, if you would, just very briefly with our heads bowed for another moment, would you just raise your hand? If that was your prayer and you stepped into a relationship with Christ today, would you just 
raise your hand and hold it up in the air for a second. Your hand in the air is just a, a statement in your life, but also in the life of this church, that you are following Christ. And know that as a family, we honor that and celebrate that with you. You can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you welcome home. Welcome home.